be seated. Well, good evening. I'm going to see if I can still do this. Um, I, this morning, Greg uh, told a story about his uh, last evening and, and how he uh, had these dreams of his turning his page and there's nothing there. Uh, Greg's likely watching. Hi, Greg. Hi, Gene. Um, and that's just, I think that just comes with a territory. I think if you ask Patrick, he would tell you that he's had similar dreams when I was in Arizona and preaching in Arizona, I had the recurring, I could count on it, it was like clockwork. I had the recurring dream of me standing in front of the congregation without a stitch of clothing on. <laughs> and I it came, it got to be the point where I never slept on, I didn't want to go to sleep on Saturday because I knew what was waiting for me. And I, and so that was uh that was experience, but it's kind of like Greg, strap in, friend. <laughs> that's that way. That's what you have looking forward to. This is this is really this is family right here. This is fantastic because these remind me of our early days at Bay, and uh, those early days were, um, boy, we we went from Easter time. We had 18 our first Sunday, 18 in church. And I thought, oh my gosh, look what we've done here. That's 18 whole people. And then uh, when we moved into this building, our very first service, we had 43 people. Can you imagine that? 43 people came to Bay Presbyterian Church. That was amazing. And um, Sue Morgan, who's here with us today, and I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, Sue. That's just what you needed, right? Um, Sue, Sue, we were just... We hadn't even had our first service yet, and Sue was driving down the road, and she just turned into this building. She said, well, she came in there, and, and I was in here. I was wearing blue jeans and a T-shirt, and we were cleaning cleaning this place up. It was a little messy, and we, clean, we were cleaning this place up, and, and uh, Sue said, what is this place? I said, it's a church. She said, and who are you? And I said, I'm the pastor. <laughs> and uh, she looked at me like, Really? Anyway, uh, we had a we had a wonderful chat. She says, "I don't know why I'm here. I just I just believe that I should turn in here, uh, and I, I I don't know much about church, um, but but I don't know why I'm here." And I said, "Well, I know why you're here." And she said, "Why is that?" And I said, "Because God wants you here." And uh, we began reading the Bible together, and uh, Sue became a believer in Jesus, and uh, to this day is walking with the Lord, and it's very exciting. Matter of fact, we're going to C.S. Lewis uh, on the 31st. We're going with Sue, so that's going to be very exciting. But um, uh, it's been a ride. Anyway, Andre used to say to me, John, how come you don't preach so long? Uh, I would preach for 45 minutes in Haiti, and he'd say I wasn't preaching long enough. And uh, I said, well, that's not what my folks say. <laughs> anyway, we're going to be today, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17. And um, I, we don't have screens, but there should be a Bible underneath your chairs or somewhere nearby. It'll be either a black Bible or a blue Bible. If it's blue, it'll be, uh, if it's blue, it's the ESV. If it's black, it's the NIV. 
And uh, we're, I'm going to be referring to some passages that you just may want to follow along as we, as we get there. Um, and that we're following the theme uh, of uh, Jesus in the Old Testament. How do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? And this is a particular interest of mine. And, uh, and so I'm going to be preaching. This is the first of three sermons I'll be preaching. And each one deals with the same. How do we see Jesus? And they're all in uh, the books of First and Second Samuel. And it all comes out of David's life. So uh, this is, it, it's caught my attention. Let's pray together. God, thank you that we can be here together today. Thank you that uh, thank you that the scriptures provide us incontrovertible evidence that you indeed are God and that you have spoken and that your word is so integrally put together it is beyond human ability. And so we pray that tonight even that truth would be driven home to us but today Lord we would see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So, um, do y'all, are you all familiar with uh, the name Laura Hillenbrand? Okay, lots of yeses going on there. That's, uh, it, it, you may think of her name, and as you think of her name, you're thinking uh, of uh, the, the movie Unbroken. Uh, she wrote uh, the book that that movie was based on about Louis Zamperini, and um, she also wrote the book Seabiscuit, on which that movie was, was based and uh, she loves to write stories, and, and she explains why. This is what she said. I'm looking for a way out of here. I can't have it physically, so I'm going to have it intellectually. It was a beautiful thing to ride Seabiscuit in my imagination. And it's just fantastic to be there alongside of Louis Zamperini as he's breaking the NCAA mile record. People at these vigorous moments in their lives, it's my way of living vicariously. Now that word vicariously, it's, it's a great word. It's right up there with ubiquity. And uh, vicariously, according to the dictionary, means experienced or realized through imaginative or sympathetic participation in the experience of another. Now, the biblical historical story that we're going to be considering today contains an element of vicariousness in it. And theologians have a term for some vicariousness. They call it federal headship. That is the theological term that we assign to that. And this is what we mean when we talk about federal headship. When Adam went afoul of God's explicit command and he ate the fruit that was forbidden, he was acting as a federal head. That is to say, he was acting for all who would follow. Uh, kind of like when the, when the President of the United States signs a treaty. He's not just acting as himself, he is acting as a federal head. In other words, on behalf of all the people. And this is where we get the idea of original sin. When Adam sinned, he sinned on behalf of all future generations. But someone says, wait a minute, that's not fair. 
Maybe so. But then again, it's not like that is our last brush with sin. We do a pretty good job of piling up sin as well. But even as Adam was our federal head, so also Christ was and is our federal head. Because of the cross of Christ, salvation and eternal life flows to all of his people, which also, incidentally, is unfair. But since it is to our benefit, uh, generally no one complains about it. And this is how the Bible describes it. This is in Romans 5.12. Don't have to turn there. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin in the same way, Death came to all people because all have sinned. And then later on in that same chapter, Paul writes, For if by the trespass or transgression of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? Sin enters the world through one man. Righteousness comes into the world through one man. So federal headship is an overlaying type of vicariousness, and it's lived out uh, in this very familiar story we're going to be considering today. Perhaps one of the most, if not the most, one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible. And I'm certain others could tell this similar story, but... Some 40 years ago, we lived in Arizona, and when my father would come to visit, as he did four times a year, his business brought, brought him there, my son, Luke, would want him to read his favorite Bible story, David and Goliath. And my son wore out that story in that Bible story book. That book would just open naturally to David and Goliath. It was a typewritten, single-spaced larger font, but it was a whole page long, and that's a lot of story. Well, whenever he read it, my dad would invariably misread or leave out a word. And four-year-old Luke would say, read it right, Papa. Uh, It's a well-known story. Let's look at the story. Now, we're told that the Israelites had drawn the ire of yet another enemy. The Philistines now had gathered for a fight. And the Bible tells us that the Philistines had encroached deeply into Israel and were now a scant 13 miles from Bethlehem, the city of David. In so encroaching, they were in effect undoing the conquest of Joshua's several generations uh, uh, before. Now, let me, this is an important piece, so let me back up. You don't often hear this, but uh, let me back up. Because when Moses had emerged from the foreboding Sinai Desert and camped at the gateway to the promised land, the name of the city was Kadesh Barnea, the people of the land were reluctant to follow God's command to go up and occupy the land until first they had sent in spies to, de- to scope out the land and determine suitability, to check out its defenses. And so 12 spies were sent out to do just that. They came back. The majority opinion of the spies 
was that they should not proceed with God's directive. And this is how it reads in Numbers 13, 32, and 33. And they spread among the Israelites, the spies now, uh, a bad report about the land that they had ex- uh, that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. So, Moses tells us in Numbers. Well, when Joshua conquered that land, Anak, from the Nephilim, Anak and his descendants went to live in Gath, in Gaza, and in Ashdod. That little piece of ground that was uh, the Philistines' land there at that time. And it's, interestingly enough, part of uh, the Palestinian region today. The largest of the Philistine warriors was now facing off with Israel, and he was a giant of a man named Goliath. Apparently, Goliath was among the last of the descendants of Anak. It goes back and and has its history back in Numbers. He was nine feet tall by the biblical account, and not only tall, but he was strong, because the account says that he was wearing 125 pounds of armor and carried a spear that had a 15-pound steel point on it. Now, the modern javelin record is 303 feet, 100 yards. And the, the weight of the approved javelin today is 1.8 pounds. Goliath had a a spear that had a 15-pound steel point on it. That's a lot of weight. But there's something even more uh, telling concerning the army. And you can see it in verse 5. In First Samuel 17:5, it says, He had a helmet of bronze on his head. This is Goliath. And he was armed with a coat of mail. At least that's what the ESV says. So if you have a blue Bible, what that tells you is that he had a coat of mail on that was that he was wearing. The NIV says it was a coat of scaled armor. That's probably closer to the original word uh, that we have. The scale armor as in the scales of a snake. Goliath is being made out to be a serpent. And you remember in Genesis that it was the seed of the serpent that was the embodiment of all that is evil. And he certainly acted the part, taking the lead, blaspheming Almighty Almighty God, and taunting God's covenant people, the Israelites. Israel had wanted a king. And the reason they said they wanted a king was, and I quote out of 1 Samuel 8, to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Saul, the king, was certainly the tallest and most suited to fight Goliath. But Saul was away from the battle lines, hiding in his tent. 
this is where we see shadows of the federal headship. When Goliath's challenge was laid down, he said uh, in 1 Samuel 17, 8 and 9, he, that is Goliath, stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, choose a man for yourself and let him come down here to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Goliath was suggesting that he represent as a federal head the Philistines and whoever the Israelites chose would be the federal head for the Israelites. And then verse 11, when Saul and all the Israel and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And uh, Nancy Guthrie writes a little commentary on this, and uh, I like what she says about Goliath. She calls him the goon from Gath. I like that. But we read this in, in uh, 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Succo, which belongs to Judah, and camped between Succo and Aziah in Ephesh-Damim. When Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines stood in the mountain on one side and the Israelites stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. That's an important phrase. We'll come back to that. Whose height was six cubits and a span, nine feet. We, he had a helmet of bronze on his head and was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, 125 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And the shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come up to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. That's how the story begins, by introducing to us Goliath, the goon from Gath. And then David is introduced. He's inserted into the story at this point. David is portrayed as a kid whose talents lie largely in shepherding, but his father enlists him to take food to his brother at the front lines of the Israelites. So David works two jobs, shepherding, and it's kind of like DoorDash. Uh, Uber Eats. He was a food runner. Now David came out on the 40th day and heard the taunts of Goliath. And when Goliath came out to taunt the Israelites, they all 
fled and trembled. Now, up to this point, two things are objectively true. First of all, it has been a totally godless story. And David has yet to say a recorded word. But now David shows up and things change. He asks two questions. Number one, what will the king do for the one who takes Goliath down? And number two, who does he think he is defying God like that? Now, at this point, David is going to fight, in effect, three battles. Uh, the first is with his eldest brother, Eliab, who's kind of ticked off with David, and he wants him to shut up and go away. He's probably still smarting from the fact that Samuel anointed David as king and not him. He thinks of, of David as an annoying little brother who's just a pain. And in, in this sense, Eliab is the first of the Goliaths who would... Uh, taunt him. David responds and he says a couple of things. Now what? And can I speak? And that's in verse 28 through 30. You can follow along. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. That's the first battle with Eliab, his brother. The second battle is with Saul, who thinks of him as green and inexperienced. Saul says, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And then David makes the case that in his job as a shepherd, he's killed both a bear and a lion, and Goliath is just another beast. Which is interesting, because Adam was in the garden to subdue the beasts and was defeated by a serpent. David treats Goliath, who's being characterized as a serpent, he, he treats him as a beast and subdues him and then crushes the head of the serpent, Goliath, who's wearing that scale armor. King Saul didn't have any options left, so he dresses David in his armor, and it was way too large. So David took off the armor, grabbed a sling, and five smooth stones. My son went to the Holy Land about a, a year ago or so, and he brought back and he gave me uh, a rock from the uh, Valley of Elah, right, where this battle is taking place. And I'm certain that the rock he brought back for me is the same rock. He bought it from a guy in a trench coat and said, here, yeah, I got these rocks for $25. You can have this rock. Anyway, I have this little rock. It's about this big. And he said, there's rocks like that all around. And, uh, and, and so David went with the five smooth stones, and that sling that he used could fire a rock uh, with great accuracy at 100 to 150 miles an hour. And it could indeed crush Goliath's head. So his first battle, 
was against Eliab. His second battle was against Saul. The third battle was with Goliath. And Goliath thought David was too puny. 1 Samuel 17, 43. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by the gods. David responds by a brief sermon and introduces God into the discussion. 1745. You come to me with sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 47, and that all this assembly will know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into his hand. Now, I think you know this part. Goliath advanced, and David ran to meet him. David took a stone, put it into a sling, fired a shot that crushed Goliath's head, and evil was defeated, at least for the moment. The Israelites chased the retreating Philistine all the way to its three capital cities, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And the Philistine challenge was, for now, over. And this we read in verses 48 and 49. When the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell down on his face on the ground. Now, that's the story we know. And it's advanced after this. It tells us, The Bible tells us that David cut his head off and brought it to Saul. Now, this next part may be true. You can't prove it from the Bible, but this is what tradition says. David brought the skull to Saul in Jerusalem, which at that time was occupied by the enemies of Israel, the Jebusites. Tradition tells us that it was Goliath's skull that was buried on a hill just outside Jerusalem. The name of that hill was known as the Place of the Skull, also known as Golgotha. Gaul, Goliath, of Gath, Golgath-ah. That's where its name is derived. And so, uh, the story goes, when the cross was set in the ground at Golgotha, people speculate that, this, uh, that uh, it was set on the top of the skull of Goliath, who was being made out to be the serpent, the snake, and when that cross was stood up at that, on that hill in Golgotha, that the cross fell into the hole that they had dug for it. And when it hit the ground, it crushed the, the skull of Golgotha, the serpent, the evil one. And you remember from Genesis 15 where it says that uh, God, that the, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Now, biblically, uh, we can't prove it that way. But 
it wouldn't surprise me if when I got to heaven and I said, by the way, what actually happened there? That I would hear back, and that's just as you, just as you had heard. Okay, and that's the story. You know that story. You know the story of David and Goliath. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting story. I don't blame Luke for liking it so much. It's a great, it's a great and interesting story. It's often preached that as a conclusion of this, we should have the courage of David in the face of the giants of your life. And that's the way you often hear of it. And to be sure, there are some um, biblical principles to be drawn from this. Uh, first of all, we should have the courage of David in the face of our, uh, in the face of our trials. Uh, and David says in verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. I think this is instructive for us. Our faith and spiritual endurance is helped by reminders of God's past provision. Um, one of the very good commentaries that I've consulted throughout this uh, comes from a gentleman by the name of Dale Davis. And Dale Davis says, memory and logic are here represented as handmaids of faith. We look back and we see what God has done in our lives to bring us this far and see the things that we've overcome. We talk about Bay Presbyterian Church. We had 18 people on Easter. Who would know that it would turn out the way that it did? No one knew that. But it's a reminder of God's past provision. And that provision and the logic which then connects it, if God took care of me then, God will take care of me now. That connection then serves as a handmaid of faith. It helps our faith to remember God's past provisions in our life. And when we think through our situations in life, we need to be looking at what God has done in the past in order to draw some perspective for what lies in the future. But that isn't the central message of this chapter. And it's often preached as such and it's often represented as such. The real message of this chapter is that we're to resist the serpent but our ultimate hope is not in our ability to follow in the example of David or even of Jesus. Only Jesus is consistently faithful. First and foremost, we do not follow Christ as our example. It's not a bad thing to follow Christ, but it's not as our example. Rather, we trust in Christ as our Savior. Jesus came to be our Savior more than an example. He came to be our Savior. If Jesus just came as an example, it was a failed experiment because not one of us can live up to that example. And so we just end up with more guilt. But Jesus came as our Savior. He's the faithful one, and we are faithful in him. Now, as a corollary to this, uh, the Apostle Paul, his implicit Admonition is to boast in our weaknesses. In first, or Second Corinthians 11.30, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. In Second Corinthians 12, verse 9, I will boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And then verse 10, That is why for Christ's sake 
I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. David boasted his weakness, but he delighted in God's strength. Eliab, his brother, said he was a, a, an annoying pain. Samuel said he was too young and inexperienced. Goliath said he was puny. But David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. And he said, you come at me with a sword and spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. You see, in very clear and obvious ways, David prefigures Jesus Christ, who is our champion. David, uh, Jesus, like David, was a boy from Bethlehem. Neither Jesus nor David were either strong and kingly. Both were more like shepherds. Both were sent by their fathers. Both were mocked. Both were rejected. In both cases, uh, people tried to silence them. Both refused to arm themselves with weapons of the day. Neither were concerned with their own safety, but rather God's honor. When both David and Jesus went into battle, they went alone. And on the cross, Jesus suffered a bruise to the heel. Not permanent, not consequential, but both crushed the head of the serpent uh, the serpent and evil was dealt a blow. Our champion, Jesus, defeated the Goliath of death. 1 Corinthians 15. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, to bring it back to the beginning is our federal head. When David went against Goliath, he went for the entire nation of Israel. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he went for every last person who would believe in him. David was the federal head for the Israelites. Jesus is our federal head. Jesus on that cross took the rap for us and just as God counted Adam's sin as the sin of all humanity, James Montgomery Boyce tells us, God counted Jesus' righteousness as righteousness to everyone who believes. And just as Saul failed as the federal head of the people, chosen to fight Israel's battle, but uh, cowered in the tent, David's victory over the snake, Goliath, belonged to all of Israel. But his victory brought the ire of Saul and his armies. Remember after this, they, they would, the people of Israel would taunt, Saul has killed his tens, but David has killed his thousands. And Saul became a mortal enemy of David. But uh, Jesus, when he was fighting his battle, here during his life, brought the ire of his enemies, who ultimately would put him up on the cross. 
they thought they had won, but indeed he defeated uh, the, the twin battles of sin and death. Praise God for the faithfulness of David and praise God for the faithfulness of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this tonight reminder of uh, our Lord Jesus the battle that he fought, us, we, the people he represented. And God, we thank you that Jesus faced that uh, Goliath of sin and death for us, for we could not fight that battle on our own. We thank you for the, for the foreshadowing that, that David provides for us and points us to Jesus our Savior, and our friend. God, we, we ask that you drill these deep in our heart for the gospel is what we have to hang on to when the trials of life get large. God, we remember your past faithfulness to guide us for our future lives. Hear us, God, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to close our time together here today as we sing just the chorus of How Great Thou Art. Stand with me. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be and abide with you always, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Drive safe next week. We're back here. <laughs>